healthcare is an upbeat way of discussing it, but it can obscure a lot of what's going on when people are really dealing with medical issues. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we had a series of episodes earlier where we talked about medical terms. We talked about terms that are not used anymore to name certain diseases. That was a medical topic that we had. But I thought maybe we should talk about something newer, something more contemporary. There's so much vocabulary around health care. And certainly we're in the throes of some kind of health care reform again um, after the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare was passed oh, seven years ago. We still uh, are in the middle of arguing about all of these things. And there are so many terms that are used that are misleading. Um, Sometimes you hear deliberate errors from certain politicians, people trying to mislead you. This podcast is not always about just common errors, terms where you can confuse one term with the other. We often talk about things that are related to just vocabulary around a certain topic that can be misunderstood or can be confusing. Right. I thought we should talk about insurance itself to begin with because well, we were talking a little bit before we started recording that you said uh, a lot of this reform that we've had under Obamacare is actually insurance reform, not health care reform per se. Right. Let's talk about insurance. How does insurance work and what's the baseline that we have to start with? Well, um, of course, it has to do with paying some money to um, protect yourself from future expenses for something, whether a fire or the theft of your car or, um, you know, the deterioration of a painting you've bought or all kinds of things you could buy insurance for. And the whole point of insurance is that it's to even out risk so that you don't get hit with some big expense all at once that damages you. And, of course, the most effective way to ensure that this doesn't get to be too expensive is to spread out the risk and have many, many people in a large pool, all of whom have insurance. And they're all taking a chance that maybe they won't get as much back as they put in, but other people will get more than they put in, but it's a shared risk. So it's simply a way of sharing risk, essentially. Right. And I've heard uh, some media talking heads complaining, oh, now this means healthy people are going to have to pay for sick people now, as if they don't understand what insurance is. Right. Insurance has always functioned in that particular way. That's the whole point of it. You really wouldn't have insurance if uh, you were only to buy it when you were sure you needed it. You might as well have a savings account. If you've got a known expense, save up for it or determine to go into debt or whatever. It, you know, insurance becomes pointless if it's not in a large pool. Can I ask you something that's slightly off topic? I think a lot of people rail against government. Like, I don't need government help. I don't need, well, what they really mean often, I think, is I don't need to help anybody else by paying taxes. Right. 
isn't insurance a little bit like a tax where you don't have to go build a road every time you want to drive your car and some people don't drive cars at all but they still help pay for the roads right this is a spread out cost that is seen as a benefit for all who are participating in it and it's just a necessary part of life to have some social structure that supports the infrastructure that's all around us roads and you know police departments fire departments and so on and then some structure some large structure that we can pay into and receive benefits only when we really need them and we hope we don't need to use our health insurance we hope we're just healthy and never have to see a doctor but when you do you don't want to get slammed with some huge bill that you can't afford Right. Although your example of roads brings to mind that uh, the current administration is proposing an infrastructure renewal that would consist largely of building roads and bridges and stuff by private companies who would then charge the people who use them. So it's rejecting the entire idea of public funding of transportation. Out west here, uh, we don't have turnpikes so much where you have to stop and pay tolls or they have all of these regulated roads where they read your payment off of a device that's in your car or things like that. We really enjoy that out here. But every time I travel to the Midwest or the East Coast, certainly, and I get on those toll roads, I just think, what a bother. How do people put up with this? Yeah, well, we have a bridge between Seattle and Bellevue where a lot of commuters go that has a variable toll depending on the amount of traffic. And we're in the process of building an underground uh, waterfront tunnel that, uh, when completed, will also have a toll. So it's been creeping in here even in the west in some places. Sure. And we have another bridge near us that has tolls as well. But um, most people, I think, really prefer not to have the tolls that they possibly can, and it doesn't bother them a lot that uh, you're paid for something. Although I have heard people in western Washington complain about uh, not having enough money for their roads and the people in eastern Washington feel, well, we get entirely neglected. All you rich guys over on the other side get Cadillac treatment and we're left with ruts and dirt roads and stuff because we're a smaller part of the population. So it's, it doesn't always work perfectly, but ideally spreading out the cost is a real advantage. Mm-hmm. Now, you were talking about insurance care versus health care, and I thought maybe we could start by setting health care aside a bit and talking about that as a term before we really dive deep into insurance. Um, the use of healthcare as the dominant term for things that go on in with doctors and hospitals and drugstores and so on is fairly recent. Um, it sounds more upbeat and positive and affirmative, and that's why I think people like it. But there are some physicians and other critics who think that it's not really appropriate. And for one thing, it could be misunderstood to be keeping you healthy. And in fact, that is a part of the goal. A part of it is uh, trying to get people to eat better, exercise more, do things that will keep them from being sick, um, get their inoculations and their children's inoculations, classic examples. But healthcare makes it sound like uh, if you get it, you're going to be healthy. Well, there are a lot of diseases and other conditions like losing an arm where you're not going to be restored to the same standard of health that you had before. Um, and what they're trying to do is deal with medical problems. 
healthcare is an upbeat way of discussing it, but it can obscure a lot of what's going on when people are really dealing with medical issues. Mm-hmm. So you're making a distinction between healthcare and medical care. And um, historically, before we had the Affordable Care Act, there was very, very little attention paid to actual healthcare, I would argue. I've heard doctors describe it as a sick care system because you only went to the doctor when you were sick. One of the main benefits in the Affordable Care Act is that all health insurance policies now cover a regular checkup at 100%. You don't pay a penny to go see your physician to get a checkup. Interestingly, this happened almost at the same time as the medical profession was beginning to say annual physicals are probably not necessary. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what it's evolved into is more sessions of advice where, you know, you check to see how the patient's doing, but you don't necessarily put them to a whole rigorous set of tests like the old heart stress test where they used to put people in an electrocardiogram and make them run on a treadmill. Um that's not considered a valid test for heart health anymore. So it's interesting, but it does mean that people don't have to worry about saying, you know, I haven't seen a doctor in a long time. I'd really like to know if everything's okay with me, but I don't think I can afford it. So having the coverage has been really, really valuable. And it's, of course, one of the main reasons that the medical community backed the Affordable Care Act, because it brings more patients into the office, both because they want to be able to see their patients to take care of them and because it generates income. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But along with this healthcare language, we get another term, wellness, mm-hmm. which is uh, uh, very trendy. It's not got quite the uh, wide acceptance as healthcare, but uh, wellness emphasizes the taking care of yourself, um, exercise, diet, you know, meditation, whatever. There are all kinds of things that are uh, wrapped up in wellness. And that's, uh, that's a very trendy term right now. But it isn't meant to cover all the same territory as medical services in the way that healthcare is. Right. And this concept of wellness it makes me think of the book, The Road to Wellville by T.C. Boyle, which was a... Um bit of historical fiction about the uh, about C.W. Post, the serial magnate, who had a booklet that he published called The Road to Wellville, A Personally Conducted Journey to the Land of Good Health by the Root of Right Living. Was he the guy that liked people to chew their food 40 times? I think he might have been. I can't attest to that off the top of my head, but it sounds familiar. And, of course, he developed grape nut cereal, and he used to insert his booklet into boxes of grape nuts, which is a great little promotional piece. Wasn't that book made into a movie? Yeah, The Road to Wellville, the T.C. Boyle book, was made into a movie. Right. I never saw it. No, I never saw it. It wasn't supposed to be very good. <laughs> but You certainly wouldn't want to watch it 40 times. Yeah, the history of C.W. Post and Kellogg, I think, is pretty interesting. That all went on in Michigan, and that goes back a little ways. And that was all about wellness, as you describe it, where um, these self-proclaimed health experts would advise eating certain foods. It's also how we got the graham cracker originally, too, I remember. Right. So this concept goes back quite a long ways, but this term wellness is a little bit more contemporary than the whole history of the concept. 
So the current debate, as we said, is partly about health care, but it's largely about health insurance. Mm-hmm. So I thought the topic we might start with is the word premium. It's interesting as a word because it has these two conflicting meanings to it. Um, it actually had the insurance meaning very, very early on in the 17th century. Uh, came in from Spanish and merchants. If you know the merchant of Venice, there's this problem. Merchants who imported goods from abroad in the early empires and also travels to Africa and Asia and so on. Um, it was very risky business because a lot of the ships that went out didn't come back or uh, they would be boarded by pirates and all the goods seized. And there were all kinds of problems. The crew could fall sick and die. Um, and so merchants would buy insurance to say, if my ship doesn't return, then I get reimbursed the costs of having sent it out in the first place. And, you know, there would be different levels of insurance, but it was pretty expensive, but it was important. If you were going to be involved in this business for any length of time and, and not go broke, you were going to need to have insurance. And the fee that you paid to get that insurance was called a premium. Mm. And unlike the premiums today, which are usually paid on a monthly or annual basis, uh, it was just once that you paid. So it's not a distinctively modern term, really. No, that's interesting. I didn't know that it actually went back that far with that meaning. Of course, premiums we think of as prizes or things you... Right, which is the opposite, right? A premium as something you pay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And a premium as something you get are completely different from each other. Yet it did not show up in our Contronyms podcast. <laughs> but uh, people can go back to that one and listen to a whole bunch of other terms that are similarly self-contradicting if you look at them two different ways. Um, but I, I want to say one more word about premiums. When I was a kid, it was really common to get premiums in cereal boxes. And that would be a little prize, a toy of some kind. Um, and of course, Cracker Jack was famous for having premiums, which they call prizes later in their gifts. So that was my introduction to the word premium. Right. Yeah, that's the little prize inside. Yeah, we had those in cereal boxes. And uh, it's kind of telling. You would often root for your mom to buy the cereal based on the prize inside, not the cereal itself. Yeah, I think about the only remainder of that kind of thing besides the very uninteresting little cardboard pieces that are included in the modern Cracker Jack uh, would be the McDonald's, what they call them. Oh, Happy Meals. The Happy Meals that have a thing accompanying them. Right, yeah. But the premium that you pay, on the other hand, as your monthly payment under the ACA, that can change depending on your own income level. So if you have a low income level, you can purchase the same insurance as somebody with a higher income level at a lower cost to you. Under the ACA. Yeah, under the ACA. And this is why it is called the Affordable Care Act, trying to do things to help health insurance along to be more affordable. Right. And it's the affordability of the insurance that got mainly addressed. The affordability of medical care got a few touches, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, drugs in particular being a famous example we'll get around to later. Right. Now, the premium is what you pay and the benefit is what you receive. Right. So uh, 
in health insurance, when you get medical care, we don't call it your premium, your prize. It's your benefit. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, deductibles and how this is getting into language that I think is truly confusing. We have deductibles, coinsurance, copayment, and out-of-pocket expenses. And all of these things get lumped together. How do they all work? Let's start with deductible. So there are two ways that the word deductible comes into most people's lives. And the the most common is actually has nothing to do with health insurance. Well, it can, but um, it's your income tax. Everybody knows about you have a standard deduction, which includes uh, the personal deductions. And then there can also be business deductions and deductions for losses um, and even medical expense deductions. But the deduction means that the cost of your annual payment to the government, what you owe in income taxes, is lowered by your deductions. If you itemize your deductions, uh, they'll be more than the standard deduction. The fact is that the vast majority of people, I believe, don't itemize their deductions. The standard deduction more than covers what they can take. Um, one of the most famous tax deductions that's highly controversial is the mortgage deduction. People who uh, buy their own houses and have a mortgage on it, the interest is deductible. So uh, that encouraged a lot of people during the last housing boom and maybe some during this one to buy more expensive houses than they really could afford because they figured, well, in the long run, I'm saving money. Um, by being able to deduct the interest. If you've paid off your house, of course, you don't get that advantage. And uh, people in businesses, we often hear about taking deductions of various kinds for losses or business expenses and so on. Those can be also a very large factor. People who rent, on the other hand, are stuck. And that's often people with less income who can less well afford the extra income tax. And yet uh, they don't get to take any interest deduction. Their money is probably paying for a mortgage that is held by the person who's renting them the property. And so they're still paying that interest cost but they don't get to take a deduction on it because it's not being paid directly. And many economists say the home mortgage deduction is terribly unsound, that it's bad for the economy, it hurts people who are less well off, uh, it encourages people to spend profligately on housing that they really can't afford, and it's altogether a bad idea. Unfortunately, it is by far the most popular of the deductions aside from the personal deduction, and politically, it's absolute poison <laughs> to suggest that we should do away with it. So it's one of uh, many factors that makes taxes such a fraught subject. And when tax reform comes up, it's usually economists only and some columnists who point to the mortgage deduction as a target. And politicians just bite their tongues. Yeah, and it does benefit those of us who hold a mortgage and hold more than 20% of our home's value. In other words, um, you can't owe too much above your market value of your house because uh, at a certain point, you won't be able to take that deduction 
beyond a certain level. But that's all about mortgages and taking deductions off of your taxes for expenses. And you can have some medical expenses in certain cases that can be written off as deductions. But a deductible in health insurance that we normally think of is actually something that you pay. Right. So deduction in taxes refers mostly to something that saves you money, a deduction in insurance, something that costs you money. Right. And the deductible is structured in insurance. Uh, Tell me if anything I'm getting wrong here. Um, Your insurance plan is set up to have a certain amount of deductible, uh, meaning that's a certain baseline amount that you will pay regardless of whether you hold insurance or not, you're going to have to pay up to a certain amount before your insurance benefits kick in. Right. And that's often charged at the beginning of a year. Um, So at the beginning of a calendar year, you will have a certain deductible. And if you have, if you have a thousand dollar deductible, for instance, you're going to have to pay out of your own pocket for most of your medical care uh, during that period. And then when that is all paid for, then your insurance will start to pay for things. Right. One of the preferred solutions for many of the critics of the current ACA is to have more high deductible policies. Even the ACA allows for some extremely high deductibles. And these have been attractive to people because they make insurance cheaper. Mm -hmm. If you say, I'm only going to use insurance in extreme emergencies where it looks like I'm going to go absolutely bankrupt and you have 5,000, 10,000, even higher deductibles. Uh, it can make your insurance very cheap. That makes it very attractive. Mm-hmm. It also means that you get really sick or injured. You're ruined. Mm-hmm. I believe that under the ACA, the maximum personal deductible is lower than the 10,000 figure that you mentioned, but not for families necessarily. Right. And it's really families that have to deal with this. It's not just individuals. Right. Now, uh, there is an exception though, and this is where I think people get very confused about deductibles because they think, oh no, I got a sore throat. I hope I don't have strep throat. On the other hand, even though I have insurance coverage, I can't go see a doctor because I haven't met my deductible and they're just going to charge me $250 for a doctor visit. Sure, that will go toward my deductible, but why am I even bothering paying insurance if I don't get anything covered? Well, there is this other thing that's called a copay, and we're going to talk more about copays later on, but I'll just interject here. Many insurance policies have a copay component to them. And there'll be a set flat rate that you pay just for a doctor visit when you're sick. So it'll be, uh, if it's really good insurance, it'll be $15 or $20 or something. If it's a little less insurance, it's $35 or just something much more affordable than a regular visit to the doctor. And you can pay that. You can pay your copay regardless of what your deductible is. You can just pay that flat payment for a regular doctor visit. Now, if it turns out you need x-rays and you need other things, then you're going to have to start talking about your deductible expenses. Right. And deductibles are not all the same, and you know, not only in amount, but in what they cover. Right. There's another complication that we fall into. My wife and I are on Medicare and we have extra insurance to cover the costs that Medicare doesn't cover. And at the beginning of the year, they both have deductibles and we'll go to the doctor and we'll receive a bill. But what happens is 
that because these two agencies, our health insurance company and the Medicare, are tracking separately and processing the claims separately, we will meet our deductible, in fact, earlier than the doctors realize we have, especially if we go to a dentist, say, and an optometrist. Um, and use different services, and they're not coordinating their charges. They will each be told by our insurance company, sorry, they haven't met their deductible, and so they'll send us bills. But when all of these bills come in together, it may turn out that the, at that point, we had already met our deductible. The paperwork just hadn't all gone through since. Oh, yeah. So we wind up having to pay a lot more than our actual deductible, and then we get reimbursement checks from our insurance company saying, oh, well, actually, Medicare kicked in and took care of this. We just learned about it. Or um, we got this bill kind of late. And there are some doctors who get very impatient with the paperwork and say, okay, we're just not waiting. If we don't get the payment from the insurance company in 30 days, we're sending you a bill and it's due. Yeah. So we've set up our own little private medical account where we can pay for these extra expenses and then whenever we get one of these refund checks, that goes back into the medical account. Right. So it's ah, <laughs> it's not easy. It's a very confusing <laughs> and difficult to deal with system. And if we were living as close to the bone as a lot of folks, it would be terrifying. Right. Yeah. On the deductible and the um, copay issue, I think it's important to go see the doctor when you feel sick enough that you need to go see the doctor and right. don't worry about all of this deductible nonsense, especially if your insurance has a copay component that allows you to do that initial doctor visit at a flat fee that is affordable, should be affordable to you. But when you start talking about your particular case with Medicare and supplemental insurance and all of these things, I think we're starting to point to just how unbelievably complicated this all is. And imagine, Paul, if you will, um, if you were um, uh, normally we think of aging people starting to have a little memory loss, imagine being older and on a set income and having to deal with your situation and a certain amount of memory loss. How would you ever keep any of this straight? Yeah. It's the very unfriendly system that we have set up. Absolutely. Yeah. We get these statements from Medicare all the time showing which of our medical expenses were covered by them and which are not. And I used to go through them and look at them and say, you know, you may owe the following amount. Well, they don't mean anything. Because we have the supplemental insurance, and most of the time, it will pick it up, but sometimes it won't. And, of course, they'll make statements like, we do not cover this. Well, it turns out that was covered by Medicare, but not always. So even the paperwork you get, even if you follow it scrupulously, can be almost useless. Right. Well, um, are we ready to talk about co-insurance? After you meet your deductible... You'll often meet this little bugaboo called coinsurance. Right. Let's talk about that. Ugh, if we dare tackle another complicated one. Yeah, well, we aren't, of course, attempting in this to give a course on all the details <laughs> of health insurance. You should consult some more authoritative sources on the web if you want that kind of thing. But we can certainly hit some of the points over which people get confused. 
coinsurance sounds like supplementary insurance, but it's not. It's a part of your insurance plan. It really it should be called something completely different. It's what's not insurance. It's uninsurance. That's <laughs> what it is. It's the things that aren't paid for by your insurance that you have to pay yourself. So it's your, your own insurer in this case. I think it's a very misleading term. Exactly right. The insurance part is confusing, but the co part is not. Yeah, it's co-pay. It's really co-pay, but we can't call it co-payment because that's another thing. So uh, what it means, though, is that after you meet a certain level of payment off of your deductible, then your insurance will start to kick in, but it won't start to pay 100% of your expenses. It's only going to pay, oh, 50%. That is a percentage of insurance or percentage of medical coverage that you still have to pay after you meet your deductible up to a certain point. Right. So there reaches a point where insurance will kick in at 100%. That's thanks to the ACA, by the way. Right. There's this little window of expenses that uh, you're going to pay, say, 50%, and your insurance is going to pay 50% of after you have met your deductible. So you pay your $1,000 deductible, and then for the next $10,000 worth of expenses, you still have to pay another $5,000 or you know, something like that. So it's going to be up to you to pay half of your medical expenses up until the point where it just becomes 100% covered by insurance. But let's talk a little bit about out-of-pocket expenses also, because uh, out-of-pocket expenses ties into this coinsurance and deductible concept because there is a certain limit on your insurance this year for an individual it's seven thousand one hundred and fifty dollars is the maximum out of pocket that you can have meaning you can only pay you can only be dinged for that much in medical expenses for an individual for an individual and for a family it can be up to fourteen thousand three hundred dollars for a family depending on how many people are in the family what this does is it adds up all of the expenses you had all the money you paid in your deductible all the money that you paid in your co-insurance that 50 percent thing it adds all of these expenses up and it once you reach a certain level uh, as an individual 7150 or as a family 14300 after that point it doesn't really matter what procedures you need what calamity hits you where your expenses are so high um, your insurance is going to cover all of the procedures after that point of course there are always procedures that you may need or be prescribed that aren't covered by any insurance. Those don't count as out-of-pocket under most standards, but they still hit people. Exactly. So you have a deductible limit, you have a coinsurance limit, and then you have, um, you know, God forbid you ever need it, a out-of-pocket limit that you're going to reach in a particular calendar year. And those three things line up. Uh, first, you pay your deductible, then you start paying your coinsurance, and then once you reach a certain level of having paid out uh, so much money, you've reached your out-of-pocket limit. Uh, that's how that all works. That's the way the term is usually used. It's not usually used for that other stuff I was talking about. For instance, uh, we ran into a dentist prescribing that uh, teeth should be cleaned more than twice a year for a particular patient. Those extra cleanings were not covered by insurance at all. That was all 
out of pocket. Yeah, out of pocket suggests that you have uh, expenses that are just really, really all on you. And uh, what I'm talking about is the out of pocket limit. Right. And that actually is an insurance term that does apply to insurance coverage. So you can hear out of pocket going one way and you can hear out of pocket going the other way. <laughs> so your out of pocket limit means you're not obligated to pay anymore, but your out of pocket expenses, you can always pay if your insurance is refusing coverage on a certain items. And not as much attention is paid to this in the current political debate as might be wise, because a lot of the proposed reforms, including what the Republicans are putting forward and Trump is endorsing, um, would do away with those limits. Mm, yeah, well, that's true. That's true. And this is a debate that's going on. The ACA set up limits, these limits that we mentioned for families, 14300 out-of-pocket limit. Those were determined by the ACA. Prior to the passage of the ACA, insurance companies would set those at, oh, whatever. <laughs> there was no legal limit to what those could be. Um, there was all kinds of insurance so-called coverage that did not really cover very much at all. You could say you had health insurance, but good luck trying to go use it on anything. There's certain baseline coverages in the ACA that uh, Republicans are attempting to actually withdraw. They're not trying to expand coverage. They're trying to limit it. They're trying to move back toward something that we had previously that didn't work very well for most people. Well, speaking of coverage, that's a good amount of coverage to begin with on the topic of health care and health care insurance. Um, this is a debate that obviously is going to continue, and it's a conversation that's going to continue. We have all kinds of things to talk about. We have uh, co-payments on drug insurance coverage. We have high-risk pools and donut holes and all kinds of vocabulary that gets thrown around that people could easily misunderstand. And I want to talk about all of those topics in the coming episodes, I will say. I don't think we're going to get to it all next time, but let's talk more about it next time. Okay. Thank you, Paul. So long, time. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.